Well, I, uh, I really do love the Christmas season, and uh, I've already talked about it this morning. I'm going to talk about it again if you'll let me. Um, yeah, I really do. That song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, is totally my jam. Uh, Perry Como comes on the radio, as he did the other night, and I just belt it out. And uh, I, love, I love the Christmas season. Part of that, I think, is because as a child, um, most of the memories that mean the most to me were made around Christmas time riding in the back seat of my grandparents' car as we went to our annual great big family uh, get-together in Bremen, Georgia. It was always uh, cold, and I remember bundling up in a blanket and uh, listening to Christmas songs on the way. And so I've tried to do what my parents and grandparents did for me and try to make Christmas a time that my children remember. And so I just go all out. Um, but when you're doing that, trying to make Christmas special for your family and then also doing things in your workplace and decorating and doing the normal stuff that you can't just, you know, put off because it's Christmas time. Um, I I found that my calendar is pretty full for the month of December. Uh, Pretty much every day I've got things I've got to do. And so I've got all kinds of lists. Me and Aaron sit down each week and we get our calendar straight And I I know what I've got to accomplish every day during the week. And yet, when I lay down at bed at night, my mind keeps racing. And you you some see some heads nodding. You know what I'm talking about. You know you've got things to do, and you know they're written down, and you're not going to forget them. But your mind just won't shut off. And so I'm, I'm there right now. I'm kind of dealing with some of that, like, hurry and busyness from within. And... As I was thinking about it this week, it would be one thing if that internal sense of hurry and pressure or whatever was just confined to the month of December. Because then I'd know, like, hey, once you get through Christmas, everything's going to open up and you're going to be able to do what you need to do. But, uh, but that's not the case. In fact, if you're like me, you know that that's kind of a, the normal state of things is having your mind racing and worried you're going to forget something. Uh, if, you're, if you're like that, like, like I am, you'll be, you'll be glad to know that that is an indication that you struggle with a lack of inner peace. At least that's what psychology today says. Uh, I saw an article this week that says, 40 ways to find peace of mind and inner calm. Things as simple as putting on some headphones and listening to music, doing the dishes and meditating as you do. That's the, the monk, Brother Lawrence, who wrote Practicing the Presence of God. That was his whole M.O., He said, I'm going to wash dishes to the glory of God. So God can redeem even the menial tasks and use it to encourage you and and get you peace. Uh, One psychologist said that the simple solution, okay, I love this, because he's he's got to have a Christian background because this is us preachers. We like to just tell you, hey, this is it. It's real simple, all right? Here's a simple solution to a stressful life. Get out in nature. You know, and, and that seems to make sense. I've definitely been in nature and felt at peace I've experienced the detachment that comes from being away from my normal setting and my routines. And man, it's great. But I'm not sure that that's a lasting fix for the problem of, it's a word, it's not a real word, but I've written it in my sermon about a thousand times, you'll have to forgive me. Peacelessness. Okay, the problem of peacelessness is this. That if, if the peacelessness comes from within you, wherever you go, you're there. So, um, you know, you might go to nature, but you're taking your anxiety and your stress and your peacelessness with you. doesn't matter where you are. Change your location, change your scenery, whatever. You're still stressed. You're still anxious. 
you're still having a lack of peace. And so if you're going to experience true peace, it's going to have to come from somewhere else. The problem is that if we could manage our internal stress and peacelessness and anxiety and, and just keep it inside, you know, we would be okay. But our lack of inner peace tends to spill over into open conflict with other people. And so what begins in here and is just Brad tossing and turning in bed at night ends up affecting my relationship with my wife and my children. It affects marriages and families all the time. It affects people in their businesses. You're stressed out and you take it out on your coworkers or your boss, your employees. It happens between companies in rivalry. It happens between nations. I mean, everywhere you look in the world, whether it's inside yourself or out there, there's an overwhelming sense that peace is missing. Are y'all with me? Okay, because I've made this whole point because I have a line written here. I want you to know that God speaks clearly to our lack of peace. I mean, he doesn't leave this up to us to scour the internet for the next big thing that's going to solve our problem of peace. He speaks with clarity. He diagnoses the problem, and he provides a surefire remedy to deal with peacelessness, a lack of peace, anxiety, worry, however you want to think about it. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look in detail at what he says. How do you deal with genuine lack of peace? And I've got three things I want to show you because... I believe when the angels announced to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, peace on earth, peace on earth, they weren't just giving us a slogan that would look good on the front of our Christmas cards, you know, or on a bumper sticker or on your t-shirt, you know. That's not what peace on earth is about. It's a real thing. It's the heartbeat of the gospel that Jesus Christ was born to bring. He came to bring peace, and it's available to you today. Our lack of peace isn't permanent but a peaceful life is possible through Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. In fact, you, you saw it in Romans 5, that Paul identifies the fundamental reason a person can have peace in life. He says it just kind of matter-of-factly, not a whole lot of explanation. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to dig into this, and we're not going to get to go through all five verses that we read. But I think if we just zoom in on verse 1, there's enough here for worried, anxious, busy people like you and me to find something to hang on to. And, and here's what I've boiled it down to. Just a real simple distillation of the message. You can live in peace when you're right with God. All right? You can live in peace when you're right with God. And I don't know if you know the book of Romans too well. It's a book worth spending your time on. There are 27 days till the end of the year. You could read Romans almost twice through just by reading a chapter a day, and it might be something worth doing. But Romans is the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. It is like his life's work, full of deep theological reflection. Uh, he succinctly states his presentation of the gospel. Throughout the letter, he addresses things that, if you've been in church, you've heard about and know well. Things like sin and righteousness and justification and reconciliation and adoption into God's family. The things that are the heartbeat of what we say we believe as Christians are all laid out in extreme detail 
in the book of Romans. And I think it takes a lifetime. You know, I don't know that even Paul says in Romans 11 how unsearchable are the depths of God's wisdom. And I kind of feel like that about the book of Romans. Every time I read it, I discover something new, and something provokes me in a different way than it did before. But Romans 5 through 8 is a really special section of the letter. Uh, It's the second major section after Paul deals with sin and the problem of human sinfulness before God in uh, Romans 1 to 4. He turns the page and starts to think about the benefits that come to us by faith in Christ. And so I hope you know Romans 8.28. You know, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But Romans 5 through 8 is full of little gems like that as Paul explains to us how good it is for those who are in Christ. And in the passage we just read, he, he outlines or names four key blessings that belong to you if you know Christ. All right, we can take them in reverse order. He says that there is purpose in our suffering, that there's hope for the future, there's access to grace, and of course, number one, peace with God. Peace with God. Peace with God is ours in Christ. But what is peace? I asked my kids last night. We're sitting around the dinner table, and I test my material out on my family. And so uh, I run it by them. Hey, you guys mind if I preach at you for a second? And typically they're like, please don't. But I do anyway. And last night I, I, we finished up dinner, and Knox is over here, and Mary Jo's over there. And I say, all right, guys, let me ask you a question. What is peace? Knox, he's like turning seven next Sunday, says, uh, quiet. Peace is Quiet. And I get that. I can, I can surely relate to it. Uh, but Mary Jo, you know, she has my heart. And so here she says it. She says, you know, like, hey, can I get some peace around here? And, and I'm like, I'm not sure where she's heard that before. Uh, <laughs> but you know what she means. Hey, can I get some peace around here? That's like, that is in our minds. That's what we're looking for. Can I get some peace around here? We think about peace as, you know, an afternoon of tranquility and calm whether that comes for you at the spa the nail salon you know just go and do your girl thing whether you're on a tractor and you just kind of going through the monotonous motions around the field and you just kind of lose track of everything and you get in your own head and man I've solved the world's problems cutting grass and man I get calm and peaceful there Uh, it's a it's a peaceful place right Uh, no noise no pressure no distractions, like a morning in the deer blind, a week at the coast. Man, you want to get away, detach, and find peace, the tranquility and calm that comes from no pressure, no noise, no distractions. But the scriptures present to us something bigger than that. Now, it's the case most of the time that our idea of the good life is way smaller than God's. And so he has something better for us than just detachment. And in fact, when you trace the theme of peace throughout the scriptures, which is one of the best ways to get a feel for how God works, you find that the idea of peace in the Bible is really rooted in creation. And when God creates the world, you know, it says God created the heavens and the earth. And immediately in Genesis 1, it tells us that the earth was formless and without form. And the picture you get is this mess that God is going to bring order to. And so, you know, my favorite way to think about it is God takes that mess and he makes a perfect place for people. And it's a perfect and and peaceful place. 
In fact, you, you keep reading and, and you see that through six days, God takes this thing that's formless and, and void and he brings his good order to it. He, he creates the Garden of Eden. And he puts Adam and Eve in the garden and they are at perfect peace. Right? They've got everything they need. There's no such thing as sin. No such thing as anxiety or worry. It, it's paradise. Totally peaceful. That's God. That's how he works. Uh, he, he provides to his people everything they need. And in his own assessment of that work of creation, he says, it's very good. One author said that the flourishing existence of creation described in Genesis 1 through 2 shapes how peace is understood throughout the rest of the Bible. We define peace negatively. Peace is no noise, no distraction, no busyness, no conflict. But the biblical perspective is overwhelmingly positive. It's this idea, the Hebrew word is shalom, the idea of wholeness, completeness, perfect well-being. A sense of well-being that can really only come from God. And so there Adam and Eve are in the garden experiencing God's perfect peace. And you know, we're going to get to it in a second. They lose that. But throughout the Bible, when God's people are on the mountaintop and things are going great, I think the authors of Scripture deliberately echo the pictures of Eden to clue us in to what's really happening. And there are two examples that I want to show you. The first is when Moses and the people of Israel are on the edge of the promised land, and God promises all these wonderful blessings if they'll obey him. The other example comes in 2 Samuel 7 when God makes an eternal covenant with David. And so if you want to, turn first to Deuteronomy 28. I want you to see how... Moses' sermon echoes the idea of peace as seen in Genesis 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 28. We're going to start in verse 1. So Moses is there with the people, and he's preaching his sermon, and he says, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord, your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of the ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And you could keep on reading that. It's just blessing upon blessing upon blessing. You know, he promises them protection from their enemies. That's, that's peace, right? The absence of war and conflict. That seems like the typical standard definition that I'd expect to hear from most people. What is peace? Well, no conflict, no war, no fighting, no division, no dissension. But God's picture of peace is way bigger than that. He's going to bless their kneading bowls and their fields and their herds, and their families, 
when God starts to bless his people, when he gives them his peace, yeah, he's going to remove from them the threat of conflict, but he has something way bigger in store. He's going to bless them every which way. That's shalom. That's a sense of well-being that comes from God alone. We also see it in 2 Samuel 7. This is verse 10. I'll let you just write that down, and you can track it down later. God promises David, he said, I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people. And I will give you rest, peace, shalom from all your enemies. This is the way God thinks about his purpose and plan for his people. He wants to establish them and pour out blessings on them to give them rest from their enemies, to cause them to flourish, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. And so whether we're talking about Adam and Eve, or Israel in the promised land, or David, the peace we see in the Old Testament is so much more than a temporary feeling. But it's a condition of living in harmony and alignment with God. Right? That If you're in harmony and alignment with God, peace is the environment the atmosphere, the condition that you find yourself in. Peace is a a way to describe the relationship between a person and God. When they're in harmony and alignment with Him, peace is the things they experience. It's the blessing. It's the peace. It's the, the air they breathe. But the major difference between Adam and Eve and Israel at the edge of the promised land and David uh, and us is that while Adam and Eve were created into a pre-existing peaceful environment, you and I are born into something completely different. Peace was, for Adam and Eve, the fact of life. They didn't have to wonder what peace was. They just knew it. That was all they knew. But for Israel and for David and for us, it's like a hope and, and a prayer that if we obey, then we'll have peace. God's promise in David, if you'll follow me, if your sons will obey me, I'll plant my people. Right? These are conditional promises. It wasn't their reality. You see, something happened between Adam and Eve and their peaceful creation and Israel on the edge of the promised land. The first people created by God for God to enjoy this holistic sense of well-being that comes from Him alone had willingly, and I don't get that. I can't wrap my mind around it. They willingly gave up peace with God to go their own way. They forfeited their peace. And rather than living in harmony and alignment with God's plan for them, what do they do? They, they set themselves up over and against Him, questioning His motives. You know, did God really say, or, well, you know, Satan said to them, hey, you know, God knows that if you eat of the tree, you'll be like Him. And they started to wonder, maybe God was withholding something good from them. Maybe He wasn't as benevolent as He had painted Himself to be. And so they gave up their peace, and found themselves in conflict with God. And so if peace is the condition of living in harmony and alignment with God, conflict with God keeps us from living in peace. Does that make sense? Conflict with God keeps us from living in peace. I I think that's pretty clear to me. When I think about my life, when I've been living disobediently to the Lord, I have been peaceless. So that's the way you and I were born. Adam and Eve created to know God's peace, to live in his blessing. You and I are born at enmity with God, into a world at war against him. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. He says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of the world, the spirit of the air, the prince who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived, following the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the picture we get of humanity in conflict with God. And it's a universal indictment. Nobody is free from this charge. In fact, if you want to turn your page over to Romans 3.10, you see that this is Paul's obsession in Romans 2 and 3, proving the point that no one can stand before God and take any credit or point to anything within themselves as deserving of the peace and blessing that he promises. He says in Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Eventually he's going to get into Romans 3.23 and say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's taking up the picture presented in the Old Testament by the prophet Isaiah. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to their own way. That's us. Not in peace with God, not following the path of peace, not living in harmony with Him. Doing everything we can to run in the opposite direction. Choosing to go our own way rather than His. Does that seem bleak to you? I remember the first time I read the book of Romans. Uh, I was a freshman in college. I had been living disobediently and rebelliously to the Lord. thought I was going to grow up and be an economist and teach in college somewhere. Wear tweed jackets, smoke pipes. You know, I had the whole stick ready to go. And one day I'm sitting in my class, and like a freight train, God woke me up. I don't know why he did this, but one of the first books I read straight through was the book of Romans. When I got to these texts, Romans 2, Romans 3, Romans 4, I was shook. Because I looked at my life, I thought I was a pretty good kid. You know, I knew that I had done some things that I shouldn't have done. But I had never been arrested, never done anything illegal. I had just, you know, sort of been a normal kid. This is offensive to read. Everybody's sin and falling short of the glory of God. I mean, the Bible is brutally honest. Pulls no punches, no pretense to it. It just says flat out, we're sinners. Because we're sinners, we're in conflict with God. And all the problems that you and I face, I mean, things like peacelessness, anxiety, and worry, they are a result, maybe not of identifiable sins in our own hearts and lives, but they are the product of a sinful world. We're in conflict with God. Everything stands against him. He's the good creator, and yet our world is running away as fast as we can. And so our lack of peace is just flat out because we're in conflict with him. We're out of harmony and alignment. And until we realize that, until you recognize you're, you are by nature a rebel, and you'll never know peace until you give up the fight, you're going to experience an unshakable sense of peacelessness. It's going to be your fact of life. See, because while we're at enmity with God, rebelling against Him, we also stand under His judgment. 
Paul talks about it in Romans 1. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. See, Adam and Eve created into this perfect environment of peace, knew only wholeness and blessing. But when they rebelled against God, he banished them from the garden, put an angel with a flaming sword to guard their way so they didn't come back in. When Israel, who was promised all the wonderful things they were promised by God on the plains of Moab, when they rebelled against him, what did he do? Sent Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to send him off into exile. I mean, God takes sin seriously. He'll, he'll promise great blessings. But then there's the reality of human sin and the fact that they claim to worship a just and holy God. So we get live in conflict with God, not just because of the enmity we have within ourselves, the fact that we want to go our own way and do our own things, but actually because by that sin we earn for ourselves the wages of sin, which is death. So e- even if... Let's just imagine that Brad Mills, 2008, sitting in macroeconomics, gets hit by a freight train and starts to read the scriptures and comes to realize that God says that everybody's a sinner separated from him by their sin. Now, I could point to, maybe from that day forward, the way I changed and adjusted myself. Maybe I could find within me the ability to live a day, let's just say, without sin. That doesn't change the fact that by sinning just once, I render myself guilty to all of God's law. And no amount of obedience from this day forward or from that day then can make up for the sins that I had committed before. So I stand before Him justly condemned. Nothing I can do to change it. So, not just the enmity within us, y'all. It's the conflict we have with God from His perspective, too. That He's just and holy, and He's got a bone to pick with mankind separated from him. I mean, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 27, that all we can expect is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume his adversaries. A person who is condemned in that way cannot experience peace. There's no way. You know it within yourself that you've sinned and God is going to judge. And I think you know this from experience. God says two times through Isaiah the same exact phrase. There's no rest for the wicked. There's no rest for the wicked. And when I hear that, um, I primarily think of being a child. And the way we learn early on, and maybe it comes from within our sinful nature, to hide our sin. And so who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? You know, and you, you, you lie up, down, backwards, forwards, trying to make sure your parents don't discover that it was actually you. You, you, learned, you did it. You, you ate from the cookie, cookie jar. We, we learned to cover up. I lied to my parents like you would not believe. And they even bring some of those things up and, and give me a hard time about it now. Because as a kid, you know, I thought that I had weaved the, the most perfect tale that was going to keep me out of trouble. I had convinced them. Now, as a parent... I understand. It doesn't matter how well you think you're lying. Your parents always know the truth. And, and kids, let that be a warning to you. Your parents, they do. They always know the truth. And you know that as a kid, too. You know that even if you got away with it in the moment, that sooner or later your mom's going to find out. And when she did, 
you were going to pay. And so you live for a day or for a week or for a couple of weeks with this nagging sense. It's the day of the day. It's like the Edgar Allan Poe, the telltale heart. You know, you hear it beating from underneath the floorboards. Uh, it's there, and it's in the back of your mind. Oh, they're going to find out. They know. I know they know. They're gonna, what are they going to do? And there's this paranoia that sets in. You can't rest. You can't sleep. You're worried. What's going to happen when they find out? And unfortunately, many of us grow up doing the same kind of thing. We become masters at manipulating people because we don't want people to see who we really are and what we've really done. We become professionals at hypocrisy, showing up and keeping our true self hidden. You know, one French philosopher said, we wear, we wear masks so long that we end up masked to ourselves. We don't know who we are. And that's kind of the point. We want to bury it. We want to hide it. We don't want anyone to find out. And so we hide things from our spouses, from our parents, from our friends, from our bosses, from our coworkers. I mean, and when we think maybe, maybe we'll outrun it. You know, maybe you lie in this moment, but you're going to come back around and you're going to fix it and they'll never realize you lied and you'll make up for it and, and all that stuff. And you may think that you have everybody fooled. But in your heart, you know. There's no peace for a person living like that. Not for a little kid who stole a cookie from the cookie jar. Not from us as grown-ups. I mean, none of us can live in peace that way. We're torn up inside. Wrecked by it. We're in conflict with God. Conflict with our Maker. And so, I mean, we live that way. And I don't know how it manifests in your life, but I'm convinced that most people who are struggling with peace are struggling with peace because they are living in unresolved conflict with God. That's the heart of it. And it may manifest in relational stress and worry about finances, but there's unresolved conflict with God. Their consciences are heavy, knowing that they, there is a just and holy God who made them for something better and they're the ones responsible for getting themselves in the situation they're in. And so occasionally, you know, God gives us those wake-up calls where your wife finds out. You know, your husband looks at the credit card statement, sees what you've been buying on Amazon. You know, it, it all comes to light. And you have to deal with it. What am I going to do? What's the, what's the solution here? In my own life, I typically turn to four things. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be different. I'm never going to do it again. I make all these promises and pledges. And a week or two goes by and I've maintained it okay. But inevitably, I go back on the promises I made. My solution for peace is insufficient. I found it out a thousand times in personal experience. However I think I'm going to secure peace for myself, it never lasts. Because my problem's not primarily with me, it's with God. And so, we'll never know peace until we realize conflict with God keeps us from it. But then get this. You keep reading the scriptures and you realize that peace isn't a reward for obedience. That's the impression you might get reading Deuteronomy 28. Like, 
If you guys just keep my commandments, then I'll bless you with peace. But it's not a, not a reward for obedience. You can't purchase it with apologies. You can't do anything like that. In fact, Paul says that peace is a gift given from God to those who trust Christ. Peace is a gift from God to those who trust Christ. That's, that's the peace we're talking about, the peace that you know passes all understanding, the peace that guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, the peace that Jesus says he leaves with you, not as the world gives, but his peace. What kind of peace is that, Jesus? I want it. According to Paul in Romans 5, we don't have to pray for, hope for, work for, long for God's peace. He says, having been justified by faith, we already have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is the possession of those who know Christ. Now, I told you earlier that Paul identifies these four blessings in Romans 5. Um, purpose in our suffering, hope for the future, access to grace, and peace with God. And each one of them is dependent, and I want you to look at your Bible for this. Each one of them is dependent on the first little phrase in verse 1, having been justified. Having been justified. In Greek, that's one word. That's just one word. And it doesn't matter the form of speech it is. But it's an aorist passive participle. It points us to something that's happened in the past that has changed our circumstances in the present. We were justified, and because we were justified, we have peace with God. There's a contingency to it. You can't have peace with God unless you've been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. The participle phrase at the beginning of verse 1 is everything. It's the hinge on which peacelessness and peace exists. The doorway from peacelessness to peace is justification by faith through Christ. That is it. To know the peace of God depends on this. And Paul says it's because we've been justified by faith that we have peace with God. Now, Paul addresses justification, which is a church word, a theological term. Now, you're not likely to hear this on the 10 o'clock news tonight, but Paul addresses justification over and over and over through chapters 3 and 4 of Romans. And it comes from the legal courts, where a person would stand before a judge to be tried. And there are only two outcomes in this judge's court. Guilty as charged or innocent. Most of us, as we've already seen, in fact, all of us by nature, stand in God's court with Him as the just and holy God that He is and the perfect and righteous judge. We stand there justly condemned. Guilty as charged. And He's going to bring us there, His judgment seat, and He's going to open the books of our lives and he's going to run down the list of all the good things we've done and all the bad things we've done. Every evil thing we've thought, every careless word we've spoken, every sinful thing that we've done and thought we'd hidden it from everyone are in his book. And on our own, we stand there guilty, condemned even. But there's another way. Paul says that it's possible to be justified to be declared righteous in God's sight. The Jews of Paul's day thought that they could prove their righteousness, earn their righteousness before God by their obedience to the law. And so in Romans 3, he proves to them that the law is of no use. He says in Romans 3.20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
So obedience is of no use if you want to find yourself acquitted in God's court. You've got to have something else. And according to the Scriptures, the only way for us to be made right in our relationship with God, the only way for us to be declared righteous and justified is by faith in Christ. God sent Jesus to bring peace on earth by providing justification for those who would trust Him. He perfectly obeyed every one of God's commands. I mean, we're talking every jot and tittle of the law. Jesus perfectly obeyed. All all the ones that we have neglected as rebels and rejected His authority, Jesus obeyed them all. And then He offered Himself up as a sinless sacrifice to suffer the punishment that our sin, the sin of all who'd ever trust in Him, deserved. He suffered there. And then on the third day, God raised Him from the dead. He'll never die again. And He did all this, not just so that He could receive the blessings of life, eternal life in God's presence, so He could receive the gift of a resurrection body, glorified and perfected, without any illness or deterioration that comes from age, any sinfulness within it, something that, a body that's totally perfect and incorruptible. Jesus didn't die to preserve that just for Himself. The Psalms, and then Paul says in Ephesians, he, he did that bringing a train of captives in His wake. He did that for us. For us. He lived a, sinful, a sinless life as our representative. See, the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Jesus obeyed where Adam rebelled. And then he died on the cross as our substitute. In our place condemned, he stood. And so anyone who trusts in him and grabs on to his perfect righteousness finds that they are declared righteous themselves in God's sight. Not on account of anything they've done, but because of what he did for them. The scriptures say it like this, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I've been listening to this song the past couple months. I've been hammering Mike about it, written by Horatio Bonner. Uh, Beautiful, not what my hands have done. It captures this idea perfectly. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh is born can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. As a friend, if you are looking for peace and you think that you're going to discover the secret within yourself, like making peace with your past is going to unlock, unlock your future, if you think that maybe you can do better, try harder, be different, and totally change, never to go back again, and that's going to give you peace, you're mistaken. Peace is not a reward. It is a gift from God to those who trust in Jesus. And when you trust in Jesus, who died for you, who lived for you, God declares you righteous in His sight, totally washed and covered in His blood. He reconciles you to Himself, removing the enmity and the judgment. He forgives you of your sin. 
He adopts you into His family. He gives you His Holy Spirit who cries out from within, Abba, Father, so that you know that despite your circumstances, you can live in peace because you're right with God. That's the peace Jesus came to bring. According to Paul, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who have peace with God and those who don't. It's an objective thing, not a feeling. It's something that's clearly identifiable. You can know that you have peace with God, and you know when you don't. And so I wonder this morning, which are you? Think about your life. Was there ever a time when you came to accept what the Bible says about you apart from Christ? that you stand before Him condemned, that there's no one who's righteous, not even one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that your problem, your peacelessness, is a fact of the sinfulness that's within you. Have you discovered that? Have you learned that? Have you accepted that? And have you repented of that sin, and have you trusted in Christ? If not, and you can't figure out why you can't find peace, I'd start there. Get right with God. Allow His peace, His Holy Spirit, which by the, who, by the way, in Galatians 5, is said to give us all these wonderful fruits. You know what one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is? Love, joy, peace. So a person who has possession of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to preach next week's sermon today. A person who has possession of the Holy Spirit has peace within them wherever they go. So if you're looking for peace and you're not, you're not saved, you're not right with God, you haven't put your faith in Christ, you haven't been justified on the basis of what He's done, start there. You can't live at peace with God while you're living at war with Him. But then I, I know this. In, in my life, I have been totally convinced and confident in the fact that Christ had lived His life and died for me. And that when I stood before the judgment seat of God, I wasn't going to point to anything I had done. I was going to say, I, I'm here, Lord, not on my own account, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Yeah, I've been there and yet still struggled with peacelessness. And I think the reality that I'd want to leave you with, if you can relate to that, is simply this. That those who are justified by faith in Christ are still in process. And so we occasionally find ourselves slipping back into patterns of sin that keep us from experiencing peace. God tells His people in the prophet Jeremiah that your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your iniquities have made it so that I cannot hear. That's a reality. That though we've been saved by the righteousness of Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that we have the Holy Spirit, we can live in conflict with God. And so if you're not a Christian, get right with Him first. If you are a Christian and you're struggling with peace, ask yourself this. Is there any place in my life where I'm living in unrepentant sin. Or you could ask it more positively. Am I living in harmony and alignment with God? Remember, peace isn't a feeling. It's a condition of being in harmony and alignment with God. So are you there? Are you in harmony with God? Do you know of areas of your life that are out of step with what He'd call you to do? Are you living ways that are contrary to His plan for your life? If so, you'll never have peace while you're living in sin. And so in both cases, the cure for a lack of peace is the same. Confess your sin. 
repents of it and take hold of Jesus who is himself our peace. Will you pray with me?